This is The Think Tank with Dr. Michael Neal, talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. This is a follow-up. Last week, we had Karen Taylor Robeson, Republican candidate for governor, on the show. This week, we have two Democrats. Our first guest is Marco Lopez, and uh, later on in the show, Alan Lieberman, both Democratic candidates for governor. And welcome to the show, Marco. Thank you, Mike. My pleasure to be here. Uh, So what would you do differently? The third candidate is Katie Hobbs, uh, current Secretary of State, declined our offer, actually did not respond to be specific about it. But uh, what would you do differently as governor from Katie Hobbs? Well, look, I think, first of all, thanks for the invitation. It's a great um, opportunity, I think, to reach uh, voters directly and your audience specifically. Uh, It's about leadership, Mike. You know, as I reflect on the last 20 years, I was uh, mayor of the city of Nogales at 22, then had the opportunity to lead as director of the Department of Commerce under Janet Napolitano, uh, and then worked for President Obama uh, as chief of staff at Customs and Border Protection, the largest law enforcement and trade agency in the country, and have spent the last 10 years after leaving the administration in the private sector creating and building jobs back here at home. And so I think that's the biggest uh, difference is if you're going to lead the state like Arizona, such a diverse state, uh, you have to have the experience and the know-how that will help lead us into the next 10, 15 years. Uh, And so it is that combination of local, state, federal, and then private sector experience that separates me apart not only from the Democratic uh, ticket and candidates, but also from the Republican uh, candidates as well. And I think that that is the biggest difference uh, that I offer and I bring uh, to Arizonans. Well, get the nomination. We'll have you back here along with said Republican candidate, whoever that is. I wanted to focus again a little bit, though, on Katie. Katie Hobbs has been under fire for her involvement in the firing of a black Senate staffer. Is is that a legitimate campaign issue? Look, uh, I think that it boils down to that leadership. If we are going to lead a diverse state like Arizona, you actually have to have the knowledge, experience, appreciation for our diverse culture. And you cannot be a Democrat. Talk about uh, inclusiveness. Talk about standing up for worker rights. Uh, One of the uh, things that I'm proud of is to have over 50 leaders in our state, including labor, including unions, that stand up for workers. You cannot say that you stand up for workers. And then when given the opportunity, you turn your back on. Do you think she did something wrong there? And if so, what exactly? Look, Mike, it's not that I think. Mm -hmm. Two juries uh, have confirmed that there was wrongdoing, awarded close to $3 million Mm -hmm. in punitive damages. Though she was not specifically named in that. I I don't think she was a a legal party in that. So the jury didn't find against. They found for the the woman who was fired, but not not against Katie Hobbs specifically. Well, isn't that a lot of... uh, clarification. The reality is Mm -hmm. that either you're a leader or you're not, Mike. Mm -hmm. And if you are in a position uh, to advocate and stand up for people, for workers' Mm -hmm. rights, for a employee who is asking to be paid equally, then you have an obligation. You can't pass Mm -hmm. the buck. 
that's the easy way out, Mike. You mm-hmm. just can't do it. And I think that that's what the jury found. But I'm not here to litigate what uh, two juries found. Mm-hmm. What I'm here to say is that in order to lead our state into the next decade, we have to have uh, that stable understanding that whether it is education, whether it is health care, or having an economy that works for working families throughout the state, you have to have been involved in uh, government and leadership positions that will help you move our state forward. That's what I offer. You've got to ask her those questions. I think that's uh, what uh, your job is. My job is to talk about uh, my vision for an Arizona that is fair, that is more equitable, that is more responsive to working families in each one of our 15 counties and each one of our 22 tribes. That's my job. And that's what I will focus on. I, I'm still when, – when I asked you about what you do different from her, I heard kind of your bio, but I didn't hear policy difference. Is there one Is there, or are there none? No, I think my focus is specifically thinking about our economy as it relates to our investments in education, closing the 11% gap in health care that uh, today over 822,000 Arizonans really f- – don't have access to affordable quality health care. And so it's an additional burden on their stress. Uh, and so if we're going to have an economy... Would you seek to bridge stress, that with, with state monies? We have to close it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And there are programs that we can bring state money, federal money, and the private sector engaged mm-hmm. to try to limit and close that 822000 Arizonan gap. But you've got to work at it. Mm-hmm. You, you just can't pass the blame or uh, hope that people automatically or by themselves will reach out to become uh, enrolled in the, in the Affordable Care Act. You actually have to be proactive. And the, the areas that we have the most disadvantage uh, in those populations, Mike, are uh, minorities. And in the most disadvantaged parts of our state, that is where that gap is the most wide. So that's the difference. It's the understanding that our economy only works when you have leadership that understands that we've got to be qualifying our workforce, it means investing in our education system. Uh, I released a $2.5 billion uh, plan uh, for investment from early childhood education to investments in vocational training. That's I, $2.5 billion of increased funding? That's correct. Annually? That's correct. Okay. Um, Where does that come from? From the taxes that are being generated. So... What Current I, surplus, but future years too. Yeah, go. Future, you think you think we can cover that with the existing revenue? If we sources? keep, it was, I was very clear. Mm-hmm. Keep the top tax rate at four and a half percent. That generates about a three billion dollar surplus. Mm-hmm. Two and a half of it needs and should be invested in education. Mm-hmm. So I was so telling it's returning you, the returning the top rate to where it was before where it is today. The, but where it won't be <laughs> briefly. But yeah, yeah, traditional rate. That's mm-hmm. correct. Um, investments in vocational training and certifications uh, and uh, apprenticeships because I went to the University of Arizona. I graduated. That's It worked for me. But for kids and adults throughout the state of Arizona, we should be reinvesting those resources in vocational training and certifications to give people the skills to succeed. We know that our economy is going to thrive in healthcare, It's going to thrive in hospitality and in technologies. So let's invest there to give 
This is about giving people the skills to succeed so that our economy thrives. To think about the education system separately from our economy is a huge mistake. And this is why we're headed down a path with this governor today that continues to invest uh, his political capital on cutting taxes. What he's really doing is he's shortchanging our future generation. That's what we should be focused on. And that's the biggest difference. That with me, you have someone that's going to stand up and work every single day on behalf of working families instead of you know, just seeing where the wind is going and moving in that direction. Enough of that. I think people are tired, legitimately, Mike. People are tired of politicians who will get elected and then they lose that fight. They lose that desire to get up each day and fight on behalf of working families in our state. Enough of it. We'll be back in a moment. We're talking to Marco Lopez, Democratic uh, candidate for governor of Arizona. We'll be back in just a moment in the Think Tank. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Uh, we're back with Marco Lopez, Democratic candidate for governor. A question that has not been mentioned by you yet, but is nearly the sole topic of conversation when I talk to Republican candidates is the border. Mm-hmm. If you listen to a Republican, that's the only issue there is. So if you were to get the nomination, you're going to be hearing about that. What's your response to somebody who says the number one issue in the state is to secure the border? So first of all, Mike, no one has more experience than I do about the border, about border security, about living on the border, about border economy. You were uh, mayor of a border town. I was town. mayor of a border town. I grew up in Ogallis. My mom is still on the city council in Ogallis. My 93-year-old grandmother still lives in Ogallis. Uh, I led the largest agency that is focused on providing trade, security at the ports of entry, and then in between the ports. The reality is that when I led the agency back in 2009, the agency had almost 21,000 Border Patrol agents, uh, 20,000 customs officers processing trade at our ports. That's the conversation that we should be having. Today, that same agency uh, in between the ports has 15,000 because their whole solution And you hear it today from the folks that you've interviewed. Their whole solution has been one-dimensional, build the wall. The reality is we know if you actually have any experience, if you actually have any thought about actually trying to solve the problem, you know that you need technology, you need manpower, and you need infrastructure in parts of our desert, parts of our border. From Brownsville to San Diego, every inch of that border is unique. It's different. And so one size does not fit all. And so this is what we've got to really focus on. And how I look at it, how I see our border uh, relationship is one of competitiveness with Texas specifically. Texas today has 28 ports of entry. We continue to have the same three commercial ports. And so if we're going to compete, we've got to make sure that the chaos in between the ports of entry is taken care of with manpower, with technology, and with investments in infrastructure where needed. But more importantly, we've got to make sure that people can properly get processed at the ports, either for those that are coming to seek asylum or refuge. We have an obligation to make sure that those investments are correctly made by the federal government. Everything I'm talking to you about, Mike, Mm -hmm. by the way, is all federal government. Okay, but you need a good advocate, you need a good leader, you need a good vision, a person that's going to provide that leadership. Not, you know, this governor 
the governor of Texas, they're laughed at when they try to propose things like finish the wall. That's not a solution. And so we need to have leadership that I will provide to make sure that the federal government is doing and fulfilling their work at the border, at the ports, to properly eliminate that chaos and make for a more efficient process from an economic perspective at the ports of entry as well. One thing I've always reacted to when people say, oh, you know, you should show the flag, you should go to the border. And I I react to that and I said, well, most of the people crossing the border aren't from the border area. You should go to Guatemala, you should go to southern Mexico, you should go to the places from which people are coming. And unless you fix that, they'll continue to come because human beings faced with a dire situation, will seek a better life. And no power on earth or no fence is going to stop that from happening. And I've got news for you. Mm. Where that investment began was under the Bush administration. Mm. It was continued under the Obama administration. I was deeply involved with Mm. it. Then Vice President uh, Biden, now President Biden, Mm. was involved in those efforts. This last administration, under Donald Trump, eliminated those investments in that golden triangle. Mm. Because you're right. That is where you need to fix the uh, sending of migrants. That's where you've got to really fix it. Correct, right? I mean, there aren't very many migrants coming from the far north of Mexico. No. That's, they're further south. Southern yeah. Mexico, Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. But now you also begin to see folks seeking refuge from uh, Cuba, from Venezuela, from mm-hmm. Colombia. Mm-hmm. They're moving up that way. Mm-hmm. And so you're right. But guess what, Mike? We've just used how many minutes to explain this? Their slogan will get uh, Carrie Lake probably elected Mm -hmm. because that's what they do. Well, if you say build the wall, I think what people hear is, oh, they're going to fix a problem. If you saw war metaphorically, that might be true. And it's gotten worse. It's gotten worse. Mm -hmm. And so that's the reality that we've got to make sure that we bring to the table sensible leadership that is actually interested in solving the problem, Mike, not making or scoring political points. This is what's so frustrating. You go and you see these politicians just drive down to the border to do a photo op in front of a steel barrier that we know has been breached 3,300 times in the last year. I wonder, are you familiar with the Massey study, 1986? Study impact of border enforcement. Mm-hmm. Over over the uh, no, it was eighty six through oh six, mm-hmm. and estimated that the net effect of the increased border effect, which over that time was a factor of twenty twenty x mm-hmm. what it had been before, corrected for inflation and corrected for population size twenty times more than had been done before. They estimated that the net impact is a thirty percent increase in migration because what border tightening did was single workers, usually males, came across. Got jobs, went home for the winter. Correct. And were circular. They tighten the border. Those folks get across the border. They don't want to go back. And furthermore, if they're there permanently, then they want to send for their family. So the net effect of increased border security, and this was documented, a very, very thorough study, was instead of cutting the degree of in-migration, illegal in-migration, it actually increased it. When what you think about it as a system, that makes sense. If you can freely get back and forth the border and you're coming here fundamentally to work. And you go back. You go back. So the gentleman that I, um, when I was a congressional page, Jim Colby, mm-hmm. uh, member of Congress, I've heard him talk about this study. Mm-hmm. 
um, and articulate exactly that point, mm-hmm. that when it became harder for that circulation mm-hmm. of folks coming and then going back, when it became harder, they started staying. And so that makes perfect sense. Last question, and it's it's just because it is going to be irresponsible not to. Uh, what's the story behind you, the Mexican president, the money was paid to your company, was reported, funneled through a Swiss bank and uh, tied into some issues in Mexico? What's your explanation of that? The story is that there is no story, Mike. Right. The story is that they want me to be distracted instead of talking about issues of uh, health care, of education, of how we're going to create mm-hmm. jobs. This was fabricated by op- the opposition to try to distract me. The reality is Arizonans care about good education. They care about good jobs. They care about having access to health care. And that's what exactly I'm going to focus on because I know that it is intended to distract me. We just can't be distracted. The issues are too big to be distracted by this or by any other piece of information that is out there. So you're saying there's no there there. There is absolutely no there there. What's there is huge challenges on how we're going to fix the economy for working families in Arizona. That's what we're going to focus on. That's the last word. And that's Marco Lopez, candidate for uh, governor of Arizona, running on the Democratic ticket. This is The Think Tank with Dr. Michael Neal. Talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We are talking to Democratic candidates for governor. Uh, We just spoke with Marco Lopez in the first half of the show. Aaron Lieberman is here, and uh, Katie Hobbs is not. She was extended an invitation. We received no reply. She's welcome here anytime. And has been here in other occasions. Well, I was going to say duly noted. Marco and I have probably been to 10 different gubernatorial forums and legislative districts all across the state. Uh, Katie hasn't been at a single one. Honestly, I think it's been a disappointment for our Democratic primary voters. But not a surprise. When I sent out invitations, I fully expected on both sides, I said, uh, we will get everybody but the presumed front runner in each case who, who would generally duck the press and until such time as they feel like they're, they're in some jeopardy. Look, I have a little different view. I think if you're running to be the governor of Arizona, you should go out and meet voters, talk to them, and hear their questions. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I, that's that's just where I come from. That's what I've done in every race I've been involved with. And I think that's what voters honestly want, especially our Democrats. We're 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 loud, noisy. We want to hear directly from folks, and we're not hearing it from from Katie Hobbs right now. That's for sure. Well, talking about Katie Hobbs, what would you do differently as governor from what she did? Well, uh, I look, what I, she would do. Right? The first thing I'll do differently is get elected in November. You know what I mean? That that to me is the thing that I think people need to be really focused on is who is the candidate who can win in November. I think Secretary Hobbs has um, a, a, some substantial challenges in that area. Mm-hmm. The Talanya Adams racial discrimination case twice federal juries found that Katie participated in discriminating against Talanya Adams. We're Democrats. We is, fight- that, is that I, I know they they found in favor. Of the woman who was fired, but I did not think that Katie Hobbs was referenced. She was. Oh, she was. There's only two actors in that mm-hmm. case. You can go back and look at the mm-hmm. at the trial. And Katie Hobbs, in fact, later apologized and took responsibility mm-hmm. for the harm that she caused to Lanya, which I think kind of tells you she clearly mm-hmm. eventually w- was willing to say that she was culpable. But the reality is, we're Democrats. We fight against discrimination. We mm-hmm. fight for equal pay. The Republicans have already reserved ten million dollars in airtime for uh, August, planning to just drive a truck through that issue. 
issue, but that's not the only one. She's now flip-flopped on the border. She's flip-flopped on... Uh, How the, so? Uh, How she so? Uh, originally came out and told Dennis Welch, the last time she did an interview, she told Dennis Welch that she thought Title 42 wasn't working for Arizona. Uh, mm-hmm. She did 180 degrees and, and recently said now she's you know feels completely differently. They're already running negative ads against her. And on, Title on the 42, title. just I hate to throw yeah. technical stuff in here without explaining it because yeah. we lose audience. It's basically a medical justification that President Trump used to impose, basically close down the border it, due to COVID. Uh, it, what it has said is that if we can't safely process asylum seekers, mm-hmm. we won't take asylum seekers from countries that are having high incidences of COVID, essentially. I agree with Senator Kelly that now is not, we want to get eventually suspended for sure, but now is not the time um, when we would be overrun and unable to keep these people safe who are coming to try to get to this country. I don't think that's a good idea right now. Senator Kelly is exactly right there with me. I said that you right. You think from, we ha- can't handle it for medical reasons or for other reasons? We, there's no way we could. We are still dealing with high incidences of COVID right now. There's no way we could keep the personal distance, the social distancing, and all the things that you need to mm-hmm. keep people safe. Um, certainly on a medical basis alone, we, we couldn't keep people safe. And our, it would literally be an enormous challenge and one that would be very difficult to meet for our folks in Customs and Border Patrol. Returning just for one last time to the situation, the employment situation with Katie Hobbs and the lawsuit and all that, what is it that you think that Katie Hobbs did wrong? Well, look, there's, this isn't what I think. This is what two federal juries have come back and said. So I just, you know, there's no sort of basis there. The facts of the case are really difficult. And again, I wish they had never happened, mostly for Talanya Adams herself, who had lost five years of her life. But the chronology is pretty simple. Katie became the majority leader of the, uh, minority leader, excuse me, of the state Senate uh, around November after the election. Uh, I think it was January or February, the Capital Times published everyone's salary, and Talanya found out she was making $30,000 less less than her white peers. It was unbelievable to see. She went to Katie to complain. Katie said, we'll try Now, Katie didn't set the salary. That was her predecessors that were a part of that. But Katie said, we'll try to deal with it at the end of the legislative session and kind of kicking the can down the road. Talanya went to the Republicans and said, look, this isn't right. I'm being paid $30,000 less. Uh, the next interaction she had was a phone call saying she'd been fired. And the only two people who make that decision are, and anyone who's been at the legislature knows the minority leader chooses and leads the staff. They make decisions around hiring, firing. The chief of staff certainly plays a role in recommending that. And this all came out in the trial where, you know, they tried to say, who, who was it? And um, both Katie and the Democratic chief of staff said they were involved. And ultimately, Katie was the one that signed off on that. Um, I, I just don't think it's right to fire somebody for complaining about being paid inequitably. Like that's that's we, we should be on the other side of that. She didn't create the situation. She inherited it. But what the two federal juries have said is that Talanya was discriminated against based on race and sex and retaliated against for complaining about it. And that's just totally contrary to our democratic values. Moving on. I've listened to your campaign speech. It seems to me your forte is the economy. What do you do for the Arizona economy? Look, the reality is we need to continue this Arizona story of being able to be a job magnet to continue to grow and attract businesses. I want this to be the best state in the country to start a business and grow a business, but I also want it to be the best state in the country to raise a family. And I think, frankly, we've been better at the first than the second, but those things are connected. The reality is we have a much lower percentage of our workers in Arizona have any degree past high school. Right now, there's a 100,000 IT jobs with nobody to fill them in Arizona. We have 500,000 kids, 18 
18 to 25 who aren't working, nor are they in school. We call them opportunity youth. Just think if those kids had gotten the education they needed, the degrees, the certificates to be uh, you know, good candidates for those jobs, not only would those jobs be filled, but we'd have people doing what we all want, which is working a good paying job, able to provide for their family to keep the Arizona story going around growth, around being a job magnet. We've got to dramatically increase our investments in education, and, and I'm all about that. If you've got a half million kids of sort of college age, uh, not working, not in school, how do you address that? And is that just money? Yeah. Look, it, it, it is part of it is the the challenges are they didn't get what they needed clearly when they were in our K-12 system. And, um, you know, our teachers are working incredibly hard. We don't have enough of them. We've got 2,000 classrooms in Arizona without a teacher in front of them. Our average teacher pay is $46,000 a year, Mike. Ron DeSantis, not my favorite governor, a month ago signed a law in Florida that Florida teachers will start at $47,000 a year. So in Florida, your first day, you will make more than what might take a teacher in Arizona 15 years to get to. It just is not right and it doesn't make any sense. And those vacancies put pressure on our entire system. By the way, our charters, our district schools, everybody really, really struggles with how are they going to retain and attract good teachers if we had those 2,000 teachers, if we had those classrooms functioning, I think we'd have um, more kids ready to enter the workforce, ready to, to do, you know, get the jobs that are out there today. How do you get that? Assume you're elected and assume you face a Republican legislature. How do you move them? Yeah. Um, this is the reason I'm running for governor, because we haven't overridden a governor's veto in Arizona since 1988. The governor really gets to call the shots because the legislature is so divided. And gets to call the shots in terms of saying no. Yeah. It, well, exa- well, but also no, no bill becomes law without the governor's signature. Not a penny gets spent but in the budget. But that's still a negative. That's without, nothing gets through without well, the governor. L- 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get yeah, to that, yeah. Mike. I'm going to get to that, which is the most – there's two really powerful phrases that uh, a governor has to say. One is, I'm not going to sign a budget until – and lay down the, the whatever the mm-hmm. table stake is there. And, and the second is, which is particularly terrifying for our part-time legislators, I work all year. I can be here in July, August, and September, and I've been in the legislature to see what happens after Memorial Day. Everyone wants to get the heck out of there, and they very quickly start moving to whatever the governor's position is. And, you know, there's a few things that I've said. I won't sign a budget until we're clearly on a path. I would like to do it in our first year if we're running a massive surplus like we are now. If not, I will do it by my fourth year until we're clearly on a path to pay our teachers 25th in the country. On average, it would be about a $10,000 raise per teacher per year. Um, I will not sign a budget until we're on a path to providing universal pre-K for every four-year-old in the state. We can get to 60,000 kids over four years, eventually getting to 60,000 kids a year. Now, I'm a realist. If we can't do it all at once, we'll start with 15, add 15, add 15. But we've got to be on that path. Um, And I won't sign a budget until we started to go back to investing in higher education in a real way. I propose a promise scholarship that would uh, make sure that help kids who are going to community college or uh, four-year schools or even back to get career and technical assistance. Eventually, we'll get that up to um, over 30,000 kids funded at about uh, $5,000 per kid for university, a little less than that for community college. see what New Mexico just did? And this is a poorer state than us by far. 
by, by the way, New Mexico did a 10 percent teacher raise two months ago, right after right after we had proposed it. Uh, and, and this is my kind of core message to everybody out there. I, I was on the education committee. I was on the appropriations committee. Um, for people who don't know, I spent 25 years in the private sector building two organizations that have provided high quality preschool services for low-income kids. Um, I, I really know education. I'm, I've gotten pretty good at understanding our state budget and, and how that works. Let me tell you, we can have it all in Arizona. We can have a booming economy and we can have great schools. Um, by the way, we can have clean energy and the, the clean air and that, that comes with it and the green energy jobs that come alongside it too. All we have to do is stop slashing our state revenue and instead start investing the surpluses that we're generating right now in the things that will ultimately help more Arizonans succeed and, oh, by the way, help our businesses continue to grow and thrive. Well, we're still heavily sales tax, which means in good times like right now, yeah. when there was pent up demand, we're flush with money, but also means in a recession we get killed. Yeah. Look, I, I think the reality of the last recession in Arizona, so much more of our uh, boom was dependent on construction, was dependent on not owner-occupied construction, a lot of stuff. Again, I think this is one of the areas where the governor has done a good job. We have much more manufacturing in Arizona than we did previously. We have a much bigger and broader job base. I think most of the economists and you know who do the, the Joint Legislative Budget Committee, the JLBC thing, um, they think that a, a recession would be more moderate in Arizona than in other places because of the diversified economy that we have. And um, our, our you know income, my thing is, let's just stop cutting our taxes and start using what we have right now to eventually make sure more Arizonans will be successful. We'll be back in a moment. We're talking to Aaron Lieberman, Democratic candidate for governor. We'll be back with a concluding section in just a moment. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're back. We've been talking to Aaron Lieberman, Democratic candidate for governor of Arizona. Um, I noted that uh, you're identified as a former state legislator. That is true, but that was a relatively uh, brief, I think you were four years, if memory serves me correct, but spent most of your career in the private sector. I, I wonder if you could talk about that and tell us how that informs your views on running a state government. Yeah. Look, I, a little bit about me, local kid, born and raised here in Phoenix, just a, a, probably a mile from the studio where we're recording right now. I went off to Yale for college. Out of my dorm room my senior year, I started a program to train college students to work one-on-one with preschoolers, low-income kids, and Head Start. And what started with 15 kids in New Haven, Connecticut, has spread all across the United States. I think we're up to over 50,000 college students have worked with 100,000 preschoolers. And um, what I learned that I think is relevant, particularly to, to being governor is how much progress you can make when you're willing to get people focused on something bigger than themselves, on some goal that's larger than just what I'm trying to do for me or my life. How can we make this world a better place? And you know, every single day at Jumpstart, I would show up and just say to myself, what can I do today to make things better for the kids and families that we served? And um, we're just in, part of it is in the right place at the right time, but was able to see how we could build and scale and grow an organization. After doing that for about 10 years as the CEO, I started a childcare company called Ocelero Learning. I spent 15 years as the founder and CEO at Ocelero. Um, my whole focus was on outcomes. You know, what will it take to get better outcomes for kids? I used to say, well, paint the classrooms purple if that gets better outcomes. It doesn't, by the way. We looked at that. Um, but what we did find and what we were able to do, I think, has a lot of lessons 
for our next governor. I was able to pull people together, diverse leaders from all different backgrounds, work with all of our stakeholders, our parents, our teachers, and others. Um, and then we set incredibly ambitious goals, and it was my job to make sure people had the resources to succeed, and I had to hold them accountable to do so. And um, we, I'm very, very proud. We showed that kids in our Head Start programs could make gains at about two and a half times the national average, spending the same amount of money as everybody else. Um, I think that sort of executive leadership is really what you need in a governor, you're the chief executive officer for the state. And I think if you look at all the candidates running on the Democrat or Republican side, I've had the most experience in that type of leadership role. And I think that's why I'll be a great governor. Can you encapsulate why? Is there a short version of what accounted for that degree of success in student achievement? You know, the biggest answer is we were willing to approach problems with fresh eyes. And we used to say, no sacred cows. We're going to challenge everything. In the end, there were two big levers that we found. One is much more scaffolded support for teachers, and the second is working with parents in a totally different way, really saying, hey, here's the differences between low- and middle-income kids. Here's what we need you to do, mom and dad, if we're going to get there. Mm-hmm. And I think those two things together were really the, the rocket fuel that helped power us. Does that inform your thinking about dealing with our K-12 education? Yeah, for sure. You know. The reality is in, in K-12, money doesn't solve all the problems. I mean, you saw that. At, look how much better the Oslero Head Start programs were doing than others. But we can't even get to some of those discussions if the patient is bleeding out on the table. And that's really where we are right now with the teacher vacancies. There is no model in education that works without a full-time adult in front of a group of kids. And we're not providing that for tens of thousands, by some estimates, maybe 100,000 or more Arizona kids a year. we got to get that fixed first, and then we can get into these other conversations. But we also have a lot of opportunities in Arizona, a lot of positive things about our educational system as well. I I just say to people, imagine if you could keep all that you love about Arizona and be proud of our public schools. That's what I think is really possible. Now, you're running in the Democratic primary, so you don't hear as much of this. But on the Republican side, uh, what you hear is all border all the time. So if you're the nominee, that's going to be up in front of you, if not from the general population, certainly from any Republican opponent. What's your take on the border and the state's role in it? Yeah, look, we're a border state. I think it's incredibly important. Mexico is our largest trading partner. I want a safe and secure border. I want to make sure we have an orderly process and we know how everybody comes across and comes through it. I also recognize it's an international border, and a lot of that work has to get straightened out in Washington, D.C. I haven't talked to a business owner who doesn't believe we need comprehensive immigration reform so we could get workers here legally to do a lot of the jobs we have that we can't fill right now. A governor can't do that. That's got to happen in D.C. I'll view my role as being a proponent and trying to talk to our federal lawmakers and others about what we need, but I'll also always stand up for Arizona first. Um, that's, That's why I'm with Senator Kelly on this Title 42 thing. If, if what's happening in D.C. is running contrary to what the interests are of Arizona and our border, I'll, I'll be the first to say it. I'm running to be the governor of Arizona, not anything else. And my focus is going to be uh, what this state needs, not anything else. Washington seems to be stuck in existing positions where it's difficult to see how you bridge those. Yeah. Uh, on the amen. border in particular. Uh, well, I, I tell people I can't even in my head, picture what could fix Washington, D.C. right now. It's it, Things seem so difficult and dug in. Um, but I don't think that has to be our story here in Arizona. I mean, the business community used to be an important constituency for the Republican Party. 
But the elements running the Republican Party now seem to be as opposed to that as anything. Yeah, some of it for sure. And, and, you know, I, I just get back to when I was a kid growing up here. Bruce Babbitt was our Democratic governor. Burton Barr was our Republican majority leader. They both lived in North Central Phoenix. I later had I was the state representative from that same legislative district that Mr. Barr represented. I heard the story that has st- stuck with me, which is that. Uh, Bruce Babbitt would go over to Burton Barr's house every Sunday. They'd sit down and have a cup of coffee, and they'd figure out what they were going to do to move the state forward. Um, I will tell you, I've talked to Governor Babbitt about it. They didn't always get along. It wasn't all sunshine and roses, but they worked it out. And what they worked out led to things like the Groundwater Management Act that said you had to have a 100-year supply of water if you were going to build new homes in Arizona. Which seemed to have worked in this state until about now. Yeah, well, we're going on 40 40 years. years There Um, seems to be a mid-course Correction culture. Well, and there, and what we need is that same notion. I, I don't think one party rule is a good idea, no matter who the party is, because you get keep pulled into further and further extremes. Most people are actually in the middle. With a Democratic governor, no matter what happens, I hope Democrats win the state house and the state senate. It's not an easy year for sure. But even if the Republicans continue to hold the state house and the state senate, there will be a negotiation. We haven't had that since two thousand nine. Um, and you know, the saying down at the Capitol is, you need thirty one. Uh, in the House, you need 16 in the Senate and one on the ninth floor. Different than the last you know, series of governors we've had who've all been on, on one side of the table, I'm open to getting those votes from Democrats and Republicans. I actually think that's good for the state and good policy. Um, we've been governed in kind of a, just a, a one-party mentality for 15 years, and well, I think we need to get back to the And the middle. Republicans have been able to do that because they've had clear majorities and never ha- I mean, I think the closest we've got to it is about now, when a single defection yeah. means that you have to play with Democrats. But my sense, tell me you've been there, yeah. my sense is Democrats aren't even at the table until you yeah. have that defection basically chiseled in stone and then you got brought in. Yeah. I uh, Look, I defeated a Republican. I brought the legislature to 31 Republicans to 29 Democrats. Mm-hmm. The closest it's been, just one, one seat away. Um, and the reality was, I'm, I'm really proud of what I was able to get mm-hmm. done through relationships that I built, but you're not wrong. On the major party line votes, on every single budget vote, they were more interested in getting their 31st Republican. And what, what happened is very confusing. As the state got more to the middle, right? And you can see that in the balances. It was only oh, yeah. eight years ago. It was 40 Republicans to 20, you know, mm-hmm. Dems in, in the state house. But as the state got more to the middle, they actually went further to the right because they kept getting, wanting to hold on to that furthest well, right number and got kept, more They extreme. kept losing their moderates. To de- it wasn't the extreme right wing that got beat, in, as in your case. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I think was I defeated people, someone who was relatively extreme, but you're uh, you in know, general. Yes, um, in, in the general election. But the reality is, um, we're a divided state. We're kind of a down the middle state. There's definitely a little bit of a lean right to it. Um, we're not an extreme far right state, and and that's the you voters know, aren't. The voters aren't, and and the, and the way we've been governed, everything I talked mm-hmm. about on education preschool, state of Oklahoma, ruby red, redder than Arizona, universal pre-K for decades. Uh, Teacher pay, I talked about Ron DeSantis, Florida, Republicans all the way around, they're doing that. Promise scholarship invented by Republicans in Tennessee is spread to lots of other Republican states. These aren't Democrat or Republican ideas I'm talking about. These are good ideas. We haven't been doing any of them in Arizona because we've had this extreme um, focus on kind of slashing revenue above everything else. How do you you break that? And we get maybe 20, 30 it's just, It just gets back to being having a Democratic governor on the ninth floor, and I'm just going to say, I'm not going to do the, I'm not going to sign a budget until we do X, Y, Z. I won't get everything I want, okay, so but the, I also won't give on some the of The budget theories. is your lever. Uh, that's you that's say, what you got. It's, a, it's the constitutional responsibility of the legislature, and it can't become law without the governor signing it. Okay. 
Aaron Lieberman, candidate for governor. Uh, you can reach me at mikeoneal.org. There are links there to email and social media. And we'll be back next week in the Think Tank.